Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the best of TJ in science and technology interviews. You're invited to join us to listen to select researchers and scientists share their rarely discussed rediscoveries in science and technologies. The time is now to come forward in our brains and process the discoveries that can now be applied to assist us to master the days, months, and years ahead. So sit back and let your mind soar while your brain processes the best science news from our past that is very relevant to our lives today. Enjoy the best of TJN. Log Talk Radio. Welcome to the Best of TJN Show. Join us here every week as we go back through your picks for your favorite shows from the Jewel Network. Feel free to send us your favorite show topics from TJN on Facebook.com forward slash The Jewel Network. Also at Twitter.com forward slash The Jewel Network. Make sure you use the hashtag TJN Favorites Fridays. Relax and enjoy the show after these brief messages. Well, greetings, everyone. How are you? And this is the Dr. Jewel Show. This is Wednesday. I'm your host, Dr. Jewel, and this show is being brought to you on the Jewel Network, justifiably enchanted with enlightened living, bringing you the sciences of light, life and living on the Jewel Network. And we have a wonderful uh, guest for you. If you've been checking out our uh, website, you'll recognize that Dr. Nina is back. And so She's uh, just come back from a very long research project. I'm excited. I'd like to know if she would share some of the things that she's learned, but we just want to make sure after all of you were so uh, emphatic about her work, and I want to thank all of you all for listening to our archives. Uh, I see that we have had over uh, 2,400 listeners with her last show that she was here, so that's really great, and we... And, that you'll increase that by tens of thousands because the information is so important. So as you know, Dr. Nina is a professor of anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University, and she's done some wonderful research on melanin and skin. And as you noticed, uh, her last audience with us, we were very clear that there was really no such thing as race per se, but what we are seeing, wonderfully enough, is the variance or the variation in how our genes are expressing ourselves. But there's one species, and that's the homo sapien, and that's what we all are as humans. So without further ado, she's a very busy lady, so we want her to definitely say hi to us. As you know, her most recent book, Living Color is Out, The Biological and Special Meaning of Skin Color by Nina Jamblowski, J-A-B-L-O-N-S-K-I. A wonderful book, great cover. I love the notes. I spend more time in the notes. But um, anyway, she's here. Hi, Dr. Nina. How are you? Hi, Dr. Jewell. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, I'm just really excited, and uh, I hope you heard the numbers. You know, we've had almost 2,500 listeners that have downloaded your show, and uh, I'm just 
pushing that we can multiply that by about 10,000, you know, that would be great. We need to really get this information out. And, again, thank you. But, you know, I'm excited and curious. Is there anything that you can share with us that you learned while you were away? Oh, my goodness. Well, of course I did. I learned a huge amount. Actually, for much of the time that I've been away, I've been working in South Africa, uh, working on a very interesting set of projects there. Uh, The biggest one... uh, probably is of interest to you and your listeners because it has to do with how skin pigmentation determines uh, vitamin D production in our skin and why this matters to our health. So we've got a, a, a pilot study going in South Africa and we're really excited about it because Uh, As you know, vitamin D is a very important vitamin. It's essential to health. It's essential to uh, maintaining and growing a strong skeleton, but it's also really important for maintaining a healthy immune system. Correct. And one of the things that we've realized over the years is that chronic vitamin D deficiency uh, leads to some serious health problems including increased susceptibility to infectious diseases and other problems, and that uh, some of these infectious diseases can be very serious. One of the things that's gotten us interested about working in South Africa is that the prevalence of TB and HIV AIDS uh, is very high. And so uh, we know on the basis of some of our preliminary work that vitamin D deficiency, especially when it is chronic, can uh, make people more susceptible to getting these serious diseases. And so uh, our, our study is really geared toward establishing some baseline data on how skin pigmentation regulates production of vitamin D in the skin to sort of provide a baseline for future studies and public health efforts. You know, that's fabulous, and uh, that is it's really exciting. But I, I have some questions I'd like for you to uh, give some on. Yeah, because now, you know, a couple of schools here, when we're looking at uh, the melanin biopolymer, there's one school that believes that vitamin D is an innate component of the biopolymer known as melanin. And so if that is true, and you're in South Africa where there is an extremely large population of individuals who have HIV, and you're postulating that vitamin D deficiency can be one of the main reasons for poor immune response when exposed to this virus, in the face of the fact that we have a very large population of individuals who are melanin dominant, but also the same population has a large rate of infection with HIV, then what conclusion can you possibly make if vitamin D is a strategic innate component of melanin, individuals who are heavily melanated? Well, um, Vitamin D itself is actually not part of the melanin biopolymer. The okay, melanin biopolymer is a, is a mm-hmm. superb and interesting, important molecule, but it actually doesn't have the same uh, the same molecular components, and is not and vitamin D is not part of it. So they share some elements but they're not they're actually distinct chemical entities and one of the interesting things about vitamin D is that a lot of the integrity of the skin is maintained by vitamin D so in order for melanin production to occur properly in the skin there actually has to be vitamin D present in sufficient amounts. So there is interaction in that 
vitamin D is required for healthy skin and is required at some level for melanin production, but the two molecules are not bound together. Ah, okay. Okay, so now this is a different school of thinking because now the school that I'm familiar with, they actually have renamed uh, melanin and, I mean, vitamin D, and it's known as soltriol, S-O-L-T-R-I-O-L, because of its origin by being stimulated from exposure to the electromagnetic spectrum radiating oh, from yes. the sun. It is definitely, definitely related to exposure to the sun. We right. make vitamin D in our skin as a result of exposure to the sun. We also can get vitamin D in our bodies from our diet, but there aren't too many uh, foods that actually provide vitamin D naturally. So most of the vitamin D that we get in our bodies is provided by sunlight and specifically by ultraviolet B wavelengths that interacts with molecular components in the skin and creates the precursor of vitamin D right there. And so uh, people suffer from vitamin D deficiencies a lot uh, these days in all parts of the world and regardless of skin color, partly because we aren't out in the sun very much. Many of us live indoors. And in South Africa, one of the interesting things that is going on there is that many people live in cities and spend time indoors and many people have a lot of natural sunscreen in their skin, a lot of natural melanin in their skin. And so these two things make it harder for them to make vitamin D in their skin from available sunlight. Well, Okay, well, I still am seeing some blanks here, so maybe you can fill in uh, these uh, voids because if you are saying to us that uh, vitamin D melanin production uh, occurs in the skin. We know that it happens in the melanocytes. Then if vitamin D is necessary to also assist with the production of melanin, okay, melanin also then is created from exposure to sunlight. No, well, melanin is, but the the two mechanisms are different. Melanin is produced when the melanocytes are stimulated by ultraviolet A and B radiation to produce melanin. The health of the melanocytes is determined by many, many factors, including the concentrations of various vitamins in the body, including vitamin D. But the production of vitamin D does not occur in melanocytes. It occurs in the cell membranes of the other skin cells that surround the melanocytes. So the, uh, the, the vitamin D production is more ubiquitous in the skin. It is not located just in the specialized melanocyte cells. Okay. All right, so now, that being the case, the, so you're saying that possibly, this is interesting, you're saying that possibly the amount of melanin, even though you may be living in, i.e., an outdoor, what we call an open-air society, which literally was what most of Africa was until probably the last 25 years when it became so heavily industrialized and people are spending more time inside. Yes. Therefore, the uh, elimination, so even in the open-air society, because these individuals are still usually returning back to their villages, our communities, etc., that this cell membrane, I'd like to know more about what are the actual uh, organelles that are responsible for playing a major role in production of vitamin D are that sensitive that in this very short period of time that the production of vitamin D has uh, shifted in these individuals? 
Well, I think the, it, it's it's not that there's been any genetic change, okay. but um, we know that vitamin D is produced in cell membranes of the skin cells, and it's produced from a chemical precursor called 7-dehydrocholesterol, which is present in the cell membranes and is a very close relative of cholesterol. This is produced, uh, 7-dehydrocholesterol is converted to pre-vitamin D in the presence of ultraviolet B radiation. So this happens under any conditions Uh provided, provided that ultraviolet B photons can reach the uh, the cell membranes in question. Now, for people who have naturally darkly pigmented skin with lots of melanin, the melanin itself, this superb biopolymer, actually absorbs a lot of ultraviolet photons. Correct. And it competes with vitamin D precursor. Okay. Okay? So if you have a lot of melanin, natural melanin in your skin, you naturally make vitamin D at a at a slower rate than if you have less melanin in your skin. Okay. Okay. And this is really this is really significant. And back in the old days, before any of us lived in cities, this was never a problem because okay. all of us lived in open air societies okay right. we all you know were working out of doors and people who were living in equatorial environments around the world not just in africa who had darkly pigmented skin would be able to make enough vitamin d in their skin because they were outdoors all the time correct Okay. okay. So the problem has come in in recent decades only because more and more people are spending time indoors. Okay. okay. Now, the problem is more severe for people with darkly pigmented skin because even under the sunniest conditions, they have to spend more time outdoors in order to make vitamin D in their skin mm-hmm. because of this this natural sunscreen effect that I just alluded to. So okay. if they're spending a lot of time indoors as a result of living in cities and living and working indoors, then they have less chance to make vitamin D. So this is a problem not only for people in South Africa and equatorial Africa who are living in cities, it's a problem for people living in Houston, Miami, Boston. You know, it's it's a it's a problem for people worldwide. And so our uh our study in South Africa is really sort of uh just highlighting what is a worldwide problem. Well, yeah, I, you know, this is this brings to uh, mind for me, Doctor, a lot of uh, bits and pieces of information. Are you familiar with a gentleman by the name of John Ott, O-T-T? Uh, no, know? I'm not. Oh, so you'll find this book so interesting. Uh, this gentleman is a banker, believe it or not, and but his hobby was um, time-lapse photography. And right. so he got so good at it till basically he uh, was hired by Disney to actually do the time-lapse photography for Cinderella as they show how the pumpkin literally goes from a scene to a vine. And that was his work. And so um, he discovered some very interesting things because he had to make sure that his lighting was correct, even though he had to work with the shutter speed, et cetera, but his light was so critical to be able to film this whole um, biological process. Now, once he accomplished that, he was very curious about, you know, why was the lighting so important and the filters that he was using, et cetera. 
when he got so uh, adept at uh, manipulating frequencies where he was able to start controlling the gender uh, offspring of reproductive, or should I say, um, uh, uh, fur producers, for example, people uh, who were raising meat from Chinchilla, he could literally change the uh, wavelength of light and actually produce a whole uh, progeny of just females or males. So he took this to the school system, which was very interesting, and because they use, I think, cool white fluorescent uh Lighting in these school systems, they had noticed in this area that it seemed as though heavily melanated males really had a very difficult time. And this was uh, fourth grade, that it seemed like in elementary school, uh, melanin dominant males had more agitation. They couldn't really seem to sit in their seat. They were just kind of disrupted in the class. And he suspected that perhaps maybe this abnormal uh, frequency of lighting could be a problem. Well, they took it out and they literally used a uh, incandescent bulb that obviously was uh, releasing more of the full spectrum. And within two weeks, and they filmed these classes, and within two weeks, the tussling and the pinching and the punching, et cetera, none of these male children who were heavily melanin dominant were doing this anymore, and they were able to stay in their seat and pay attention during the whole class time. Right. Well, so, you know, uh, there's been tremendous amounts of interesting research in the last few years about uh, just how sensitive our eyes are and our bodies are to different wavelengths of visible light. So we're not only sensitive to ultraviolet radiation, but we're also extremely sensitive to different wavelengths of visible light. And these have different excitatory effects on our nervous system. For instance, you know, blue light is needed for us to remain alert, and uh, it's, uh, it's an important component of a lot of the office lighting that we live under uh, because people are supposed to be alert in the workplace, for instance. But we know also that, that these wavelengths have you know, more subtle behavioral effects that are just beginning to be appreciated. Okay, hold that point, Dr. Nina, because I definitely want to go back to the D-light and focus right after this message. We'll be right back, everybody. Would you like to be smarter, more at peace in your life? Are you searching for a greater spiritual connection? All of this and much more can be yours by enrolling in Dr. Jewel's balancing program. Many participants feel effects from day one, and in no time you can enjoy the physiological effects equal to eight hours of meditation in as little as 15 minutes a day. To learn more and sign up for Dr. Jewel's balancing program, please visit our website, www.thejewelnetwork.net. Well, greetings, everyone, and if you're just tuning in, uh, wonderful pre-picture of pins and uh, pads, your universal solvent water, and uh, take a seat very quickly because we have with us today Dr. Nina Jemblowski, uh, professor of anthropology from uh, Penn State University, and we've been talking about some interesting components regarding melanin, but right now she has been away studying the implications of vitamin D uh, deficiency relative to uh, sun exposure, and it looks like that's going to be a, a fabulous uh, discussion. But, Doctor, you mentioned uh, blue light. Now, are you referring to blue light as in the spectrum of ultraviolet blue? and No, I'm referring to just... Uh, uh, in this in this context, just blue visible light and the the biological effects of blue visible light. I don't study this. Some of my colleagues study it, but it is very interesting. And I was simply replying to your point about the uh, the young people who are experiencing agitation and wow. under certain wavelengths. And when the the light bulbs were changed, they experienced less agitation. Okay, very interesting. So. Um 
you know, it's been a long time since I've read about uh, blue light because there was a lot of work that was being done in the 1800s, and especially from some researchers over in India where they were treating just about any type of um, inflammatory response or infectious response with uh, exposure of blue frequencies from the uh, visual light spectrum. Uh, but that kind of fell out of um, utilization, et cetera, and I, I think it's interesting that you would bring that information back, that this was something that was very important for focus. Now, what do we do with this? Because, as you know, full-spectrum lighting right now, and John Ott had a company, very interesting, where he was really helping to uh, simulate a company to manufacture full-spectrum light incandescent bulbs, and I don't know basically what happened to that. I can see that there's some places, Lowe's or something, that has them. But what do we need to do? Because this is a, a, a serious problem, especially since even our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, doesn't allow us to really uh, honor the daytime, nighttime cycles of lighting throughout the year, especially in the temperate zone. What are we going to do? Well, um, I wish I could give a simple solution, but... Uh, all I can say is that in the last two years, there's been an absolute explosion of scientific research on the effects of different wavelengths of visible light on human circadian rhythms and human biology in general. And I think that after this uh, sort of cycles into or, or I guess infiltrates into uh, corporate circles, we're going to see a lot more uh, light bulbs that are geared toward different uh, uh, sort of biological or emotional regimes for people. And so, you know, right now if you go to your typical hardware store, you can buy a so-called daylight bulb or, you know, a, a warm light or a cool light. I think those are going to be a lot more subtle in the future, and they're going to be lights that are geared more toward, specifically toward alertness or, you know, relaxation. Uh, and as we begin to know more specifically the effects of different wavelengths. But you were alluding to the potential interaction of melanin pigmentation uh, with, with visible light, and this is still an area that we know very, very little about. One of the fascinating things about the biology of melanin is that it probably has a whole range of effects in the body, and uh, including some effects on the nervous system, but we don't know what these are. And these need to be studied thoroughly, but also with great, great attention to, to social issues and sensitivity to social issues, because we do not need to have any kind of, of racist medicine and biology reinvented. I mean, we, we, thank goodness, we just barely survived, you know, a, a century of that. Uh, exactly. and we we don't want to revive it. <laughs> it, it well, exactly. And, you know, it, it, as I've been reading over the years with this, like I said, uh, studying with uh, Dr. Stanley Garn, uh, he was very clear about the fact that the uh, use of the term variant had to be uh, a buffer for any description when we start talking about amount of melanin, uh, because what we're looking at, uh, as you mentioned, is the uh, phenomena which also needs to have a lot of uh, attention paid to it, which is the epigenetic component of yeah. how states of consciousness uh, directly turn on, turn off, and modulate many genes of which we've just come to the awareness of recognizing that a neuropeptide can literally uh, stimulate and give directives to a cell to access its own DNA library in a unique way. So right. I'm curious, Doctor, as to, you know, it, it'll be amazing. I'm just curious to know how you're even setting up your uh, study protocol to even begin to do this. You know, what it, it, can you share with us perhaps just a little bit about uh, how you're deciding when you're going to take 
specimens, how you're going to yes. take specimens. Um, we, oh. we have uh, very carefully designed this to try to control as many variables as possible, and we're, we're measuring the ultraviolet radiation uh, at the time that uh, at the at for the same period of time that we're actually taking some measurements and blood samples from our study subjects. And so we're measuring ultraviolet radiation and we're asking our study subjects exactly what times of the day they're outside and for how long and what they're wearing so that we can get a good idea of what their skin exposure to ultraviolet radiation is in the weeks preceding our measurements. So we're trying to control these things as carefully as possible. As you know, it's really tricky. You know, when you're when you're dealing with human beings who have real lives, you can't control, you know, every little movement and and thing that they do. And so we're trying our best to to run as tightly a controlled an experiment while allowing that we're working with real human beings with real lives. Our study is one of the very few studies in the world that is actually looking at vitamin D in human beings who are living real lives and who aren't just sort of confined in a laboratory for a short period of time. I see. And so you're using serum, vitamin D levels? Yes. And we're following these individuals throughout one full solar cycle from the height of summer, which we just measured in South Africa, to the depth of winter, which we will be measuring when I return there in several months. Okay, so you're not using uh, solstice uh, you're not using the solstice as the beginning yes, of summer. Yes, yes we are. We're we're using we're we're measuring the peak vitamin D levels that are six weeks offset from the solstice. So, for instance, the austral so, uh, summer solstice was on December 22nd, and we took our measurements of our human subjects in South Africa during the month of February approximately okay. six weeks offset from the solstice, which is the the maximum uh, vitamin D, the, the maximum predicted vitamin D levels time. And similarly, we'll be taking samples six weeks after the winter solstice. Okay. Okay, well, you know, I've got uh, a couple of questions because I'm sure the... Uh, Parameters also are centered around uh, whether these are going to be children, adults, and if so, then what are the age groups, et cetera, that you consider and why. But why? But if we can, if you could just tell us that very quickly, right after this message, we'll be right sure. back. It's amazing. We'll be right back, everyone. From Jewel Publications, straight from the heart, by Dr. Jewel Pukram. An incredible volume of work, Dr. Jewell explores the genesis of disease, prostate health, and sexuality, as well as sharing a new look at the effects emotions play in the resolution of cancer. Straight from the Heart is an outpouring of wisdom that you will read over again. Get your paperback or ebook copy today. Well, thank you for tuning in, and you're listening to the Dr. Jewel Show. I'm your host, Dr. Jewel, and this program is being brought to you by the Jewel Network, justifiably enchanted with enlightened living, bringing you the sciences of life and living on PJN, the Jewel Network. We have a fabulous guest here with us. Again, uh, Dr. Nina Jamblowski, Professor of Anthropology at Pennsylvania State University, and she's just returned from South Africa, furthering her studies in the understanding of skin, its nature, and its contents. And we've been talking about vitamin D, but I, I definitely want to uh, uh, request that you really purchase her book, Living Color. This is her uh, most recent contribution to this understanding of ourselves. 
the biological and social meaning of skin color. Now, you know, Dr. Uh, Nina, I, I really love uh, your notes. I just love it. I don't know why I pass the text and I go straight to your notes. And as we've been sitting here, <laughs> we've been sitting here, you know, and I'm looking at you, your uh, comments on the skin's natural palate. Uh, this is very important, everyone, because she gives a, a wonderful history here on the uh, origin of skin, and also that's a previous publication of hers, uh, Skin, A Natural History. So here we are now uh, at this point where we're beginning to measure vitamin D because of its direct effect on the immune system and a lot of other uh, systems in the body. And now since you're doing this in South Africa, what are the parameters for selecting who can participate in the study, and why did you choose those parameters? Yes, we're, uh, we're actually measuring young adults, uh, 18 to 24 years of age, who are healthy, so non-HIV positive, healthy young adults. And we're measuring uh, individuals of a variety of different skin pigmentations. So we have, uh, we're measuring everyone's skin pigmentation using a special reflectometry device. So we'll be able to get uh, good measurements of skin pigmentation as well as these other uh, measurements of, of diet, UV exposure, and so forth. So we're hoping to control for as many variables as possible. And by having young adults really at the peak of their of their prime uh they we should be getting sort of uh the best possible indication of how skin pigmentation affects vitamin D production now one of the, so you are you choosing a sampling of equal males and females we're and trying I, to do this yes we're trying to do this and we so far, we've gotten approximately equal numbers. Yes. Okay. Now, I think this is going to be interesting. You know, my uh, background comes in in uh, gynecology and obstetrics. So I just have to throw that out to you. I think that you're going to see some uh, very interesting variations here when you are monitoring uh, the females. I think you should also want to know where they are in their uh, menstrual cycle. I'm sure that's going to play an incredible role on the vacillation that you may see in the levels of vitamin D. Yes, it, we, we, unfortunately we aren't taking note of this, but I, I take your point that it would be interesting to look at in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just saying you may want to just ask them where they are, just you know, as a side note. You do such wonderful notes, so you just may want to take that information. So as you begin to collect the data, uh, that may... Uh, roll out is something very interesting that, you know, for the females in the group that at this particular time, et cetera, you may see some deviation in right. your level. Yeah. And uh, that, that if you have that information up front, just asking that one question, it can probably clear up a lot of stuff at the end when you're trying to make the, uh, your analysis of all this wonderful information that you're collecting. <laughs> this is amazing. Okay. It's a great study. It's a great, great study. Oh, and one other thing, Nina, Dr. Nina, too, I think it's really interesting. I was doing some research on looking at fabric and the effects that uh, different types of fabric have as far as uh, the uh, transmission of light. And it seems as though there are many of the uh, synthetic fibers that uh, really block a lot of the... Uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, and I don't know what the textile industry is uh, in South Africa, but I thought it was very interesting that, what is it, maybe about 50 years ago that most of these countries were literally weaving and making their own fabrics, and then about 50 years ago, uh, the textile industry literally shifted, and a lot of the textiles were literally being made, even though the raw materials were in Africa, they were being shipped over to Europe, Spain, the UK, et cetera, and then being reshipped back to uh, South Africa. And uh, in the last 10 years, uh, the the South African textile industry is 
still active, but it was a lot more active 10 years ago when not only were a lot of the fibers being grown in South Africa, but a lot of the fabric was being woven and a lot of the clothing actually being sewn in South Africa and Swaziland. Unfortunately, in the last 10 years, uh, most of this, uh, especially the clothing, the sewn clothing industry, has been uh, eliminated from much of sub-Saharan Africa because of competition uh, from very cheap production in China and Southeast Asia. And so, unfortunately, a lot of that business now has, has been lost. It perhaps will be regained in time. But to go back to your, uh, to your initial point, the fabrics, uh, fabrics have a variety of different sun protection factors. And now uh, textile manufacturers are acutely aware of this, and many fabrics are made specifically with a high SPF so as to ensure against penetration of ultraviolet radiation into or onto the skin. So this, this has become big business to make you know, uh, sun-protective fabrics and clothing. But even before it became big business, um, and I talk about this in my, in my book, in the late 19th century, it became big business as part of the European colonial uh, establishment to create fabrics that would allow Europeans to live uh, healthy lives under tropical African and Asian sunshine because it was realized that, uh, that lightly pigmented European skin was so subject to serious damage under strong sunlight that new fabrics had to be developed in order to protect people. And one of the oldest fabrics actually is called Solara, named after the sun. It is still manufactured by a weaver in London, but it used to be uh, made into all sorts of tropical weight suits that were worn by Europeans and others who were working in equatorial Africa, South America, and Southeast Asia. Now, that would be an interesting observation to make, uh, Dr. Nina, that with this uh, use of uh, Solara in the fabric. So is it a solution that the fabric is treated in? Well, or is actually, it, it, was, it, was just, it was just a very tightly woven but lightweight wool. And, and uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's not the kind of thing that I would think about necessarily wearing if I were going to be working in Nairobi or Lagos. But, uh-huh. um, you know, at the time, and this was in the era before synthetic fabrics, it was considered to be, you know, definitely the thing, especially for men who wanted to have a professional look but still be protected from the sun. Okay, well... You know, this would probably be a retrospective study, but it would be interesting if that data could be collected by someone who just, you know, didn't have much to do but found that intriguing to see what the uh, lifespan was for these individuals relative to the health of their bodies for literally wearing this in these tropical areas. Are these people, were they more prone? Did they have a higher incidence of cancer, you know, et cetera? That would be interesting to see that, even though we would assume that if they could afford that type of uh, fabric, that they had a basically good diet. Obviously, they knew they were going to be outside, exposed to light, et cetera, but if we can then see that they went on to have degenerative diseases, immune challenge diseases, that would be interesting to then take a very good look at what the long-term results would be for wearing this type of weave and fabric. I think probably in, in the days when this was worn widely, 
the people would still be getting quite a bit of sun exposure on their hands and faces. So that probably, if they had lightly pigmented skin to begin with, that probably gave them enough UV exposure so that they got enough vitamin D production. But your question is very well framed and is a good question. Yeah, and and, and now that's an interesting uh, study too, Dr. Nina, is that if you could get a group of people to agree to that, that they could wear a particular fiber that would cover a significant percentage of the body, and then monitor their vitamin D levels with only X amount surface. Well, it's it's funny that you should say this, because basically now uh, dermatologists and epidemiologists worldwide, but especially in North America and Europe, are becoming acutely aware of the effect of clothing and of chemical sunscreen on the production of vitamin D in the skin. And they are undertaking prospective studies to determine just how much vitamin D production is prevented by clothing and sunscreen. So someone heard me, huh? (laughs) Oh, this is, you know, this is a big problem now because vitamin D deficiency has become so widespread among so many different populations worldwide because of urban living and because of sunscreen use. So now we need to figure out exactly, you know, what do we need to modify again to improve our vitamin D status? And I think the, que- the, the answer is going to be, it depends. And one of the things that it's going to depend upon is your skin pigmentation. Right. So, and so I think this is going to be a very interesting story that will emerge in the next few years. Right. Well, let me just give you another hint here because I thought this was very interesting too. I love reading these very old, ancient uh, scientific texts here on light. I've, been, I've collected a lot of them over the last 15 or 20 years. And there was a gentleman, again, I think he was uh, from India, and he created something known as a chroma loom. Are you familiar with that? No. Uh, how do you spell that? Okay. Like a chromatic, C-H-R-O-M-A-L-O-M-E, loom. Okay? Oh, yes. So, yes, I have heard of this. Yes. 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 Absolutely fascinating. Right. But now this was, you know, his, his deduction is that he was very... Uh, Selective, and he did a lot of research on identifying the elements in our periodic table that yield full spectrum color. And those were literally the elements that were used to coat high quality glass so that when pure sunlight passed through this glass with this element radiating its color, that it literally was hung over the human body so that not only were these individuals allowed to uh, sunbathe, but the chromalume specifically was created to allow the intensity of certain wavelengths to penetrate the body. And and he wrote incredible testimonies, supposedly from many of the diseases that he treated, uh, because he was able to do this. And it was interesting because the chromalume, as it was shaped, basically like a human body almost, um, he could take out the uh, grids that he used of these elemental colored plates and replace them relative to the area of the organs that were challenged. So, you know, I have constantly thought about that. Well, I won't say constantly, but it frequently comes to my mind when I think about these uh, perplexing situations where... uh, if we could just boost the immune system very quickly in the face of whatever it is, medication that we may be giving or surgery that may have been performed, et cetera, what would be the outcome? And that was always something I thought was just intriguing and very simple to do, uh, especially if we had sunlight working for us. And so obviously in South Africa and all these tropical areas, 
you know, that would be something that would not be very difficult. But he had very interesting formulas as to how he selected the elements, etc. So I never thought of using elements as a stain for glass to get the pure wavelength of light. But this was something that he spent a lot of time with. So yes. and and actually uh window manufacturers do pay attention to this uh and it's it's uh well known among window manufacturers that you can introduce elements into glass to make it preferably screen out or allow in certain wavelengths of light so you can custom make window glass that will then have you know specific transmittances and therefore specific biological effects on the people indoors. Right. Well, you know, as I said, I, you know, this, this is kind of like my hobby. I'm even a colorist. You know, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't paint, I don't draw, I color. And yeah. so And so, therefore, uh, this has always been fascinating to me. And now since you're beginning to undertake this type of uh, study, you know, it, it just brings uh, to mind a lot of this tidbits of information I've looked at over the uh, decades. But I, I really want to uh, thank you. And, of course, we here at the Jewel Network think that your work is tremendous. And if there's any way we can support you, we are uh, right here with you uh, to uh, do so. And uh we just want to thank you because I know that you've got a short stay with us, but thank you so much for coming. And, of course, we want to know the results when you have finished your studies next winter. What are you going to what, what well, find? Uh, I, think, I think we probably should have a, another conversation in about six months or uh, yes. seven months' time after we have our results so that I can tell yes. you and, and all the listeners about our results. I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have some interesting and important results, and I'm hopeful that that you know these can shed light not only on the situation for people in South Africa but much more widely in the world. I uh, I congratulate you. I commend you, and I think that I know that it will. As a matter of fact, I, I know that it will. So I'm still going to uh, review my schools on vitamin D here, and and I think that I'm going to send you some information on that that I've collected because it will be great to see how we can find and weave all this together so that uh, we can help rebuild these immune systems because this is really a challenge. Yes. So, uh, I think this will, be, this will be very important for the future of mankind. No question. And, of course, if we're going to actually go into these areas in space that we know have higher concentrations of specific wavelengths of light, how are we going to handle that if we can't even tolerate uh, well, what's coming to us naturally from our own sun. So, yes, yes this has a, a lot of implications. I'm excited for you. I'm excited because I'm thinking about this. My little neurons are just talking. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> so we definitely will invite you back, Dr. Nina, and, uh, again, um, inviting everyone to take the time to really play back this archive. It's very, very important, and please, by all means, Purchase the book, Living Color, a great expose on understanding uh, melanin and skin, and also for historical reference, her book, Skin, A Natural History. So thank you so much, Doc, and we are looking forward to having you back in about seven months. Okay, Dr. Jewell, thank you very much again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Boy, I tell you, it's just so interesting, and we'll be right back after this break and... We've got other things to share. I'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewel Network, justifiably enchanted with enlightened living, on the web at www.thejewelnetwork.net. Would you like to be smarter, more at peace in your life, are you searching for a greater spiritual connection? All of this and much more can be yours by enrolling in Dr. Jewel's balancing program. Many participants feel effects from day one 
and in no time you can enjoy the physiological effects equal to eight hours of meditation in as little as 15 minutes a day. To learn more and sign up for Dr. Jewel's balancing program, please visit our website, www.thejewelnetwork.net. Well, greetings, everyone, and if you're just tuned in, oh, please make sure that you uh, find some time to go back to our website here and uh, listen to the uh, earlier guests that we had on today, Dr. Nina Jamblowski, professor from, of anthropology from uh, Pennsylvania State University, who has just returned from South Africa and is beginning her study on vitamin D production in the skin. And it's very interesting because she has informed us, and as we know this, that vitamin D is very, very important for immune health, bone production, calcium uh, metabolism, a lot of things, but definitely for the immune system. And with the advent of all of these disorders that people are having, autoimmune disorders, as well as infections that are no longer treatable with our standard arsenal of antibiotics, what is it that human beings are doing that are preventing them from being able to respond to the change in the bacteria flora of our environment? We should be able to respond as the bacteria are able to respond and change, but we're not doing that. What seems to be the problem? And so her group has identified that the vitamin C production seems to be threatened in the skin of humans. And so to determine how much is being made, whether you're melanin dominant, melanin recessive, to also determine uh, what seems to be the standard amount or relative to the standard amount of light exposure, because we recognize that's a problem. Uh, and also, we're looking at age groups. There's a lot of variables that she's tackling, and I just really admire her for trying to look at all this and to be able to get some consistent data that we can really make uh, sense out of. So we can support her work because she's working on behalf of all humans in uh, her attempt to contribute to uh, enhancing our immune function by identifying how we can make more vitamin D. We can definitely understand more about ourselves as far as skin, as far as melanin production, by purchasing her book because it's a great treatise on this, Living Color, A Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color as well as Skin, A Natural History. So we can all then uh, look forward to the results that she uh, will elucidate and that we are now intelligent and capable of understanding why our skin, and we talk about this a lot on the Jewel Network, is so important. It is literally your external brain. So just like we know the brain of the cells of our body is the cell membrane, well, our cell membrane of sorts is our skin. It biologically originates from the same tissue as our central nervous system, our brain, spinal column, etc., and it does need special care. So with that said, I'm just going to give you a little uh, cute little tip, something that I used to recommend for my clients uh, decades ago, and I found out that they still make them, and that is a bath ball. And a bath ball is a, uh, a filter that specifically absorbs chlorine out of the bath water. And so many people don't take baths as it used to be recommended, because of many people feel that showers are adequate. I've always known that for women, putting the pelvis in water for at least 10 to 15 minutes at least twice a week was very important to ensure full blood flow to that very deep area of the body where the uterus and the ovaries and the tubes lie and ensuring that waste can be taken away and blood with nutrients in it can be brought to these areas. And because bathing has diminished in uh, the modern woman, 
the increase in reproductive disorders has increased, the increase in infertility, but also, too, we don't want to damage our skin with sitting in chlorine. And so the bath balls usually can be bought at uh, health-conscious grocery stores for your benefit. So take a listen, and we'll be back next week, next Monday, with the Dr. Joe Balancing Show. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the best of TJN science and technology interviews. Join us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Jewel Network, where you're invited to join us to listen to select researchers and scientists share their rarely discussed rediscoveries in science and technologies. For our complete broadcast schedule, additional information, and to purchase products, please visit our website at thejewelnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook at The Jewel Network. Thank you.